Welcome to History Interrupted, American Stories Brought to Life. I'm Will Thomas. Late in the evening on May 2nd, 1879, in a little courtroom in Omaha, Nebraska, Chief Standing Bear of the Ponca Nation stood to address the court. That spring, he led nearly 30 others out of Indian Territory, today Oklahoma, back to their ancestral lands on the Missouri River. The U.S. Army arrested him and planned to send him and all of the Poncas back to Indian Territory. Standing Bear filed a writ of habeas corpus in federal court under the law that required the government to justify any person's imprisonment. When we come back, what did Standing Bear seek in that moment? And how had other Native leaders, including Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce, challenged the U.S. government's dispossession of their homelands? How was Native sovereignty under assault? And what were the instruments of dispossession? We'll talk with Dr. Margaret Hiddle, an expert on the history of Native American sovereignty, the American West, and the legal and constitutional history of Indian-U.S. relations. We're talking today about the moment on May 2nd, 1879 in Omaha, when Chief Standing Bear of the Ponca Nation stood before a U.S. federal court, held out his right hand, and declared, That hand is not the color of yours, but if I prick it, the blood will flow, and I shall feel pain. The blood is the same color as yours. God made me, and I am a man. The federal judge in the case, Elmer Dundee, ruled an Indian is a person under the meaning of the laws of the United States, and that the U.S. government had no rightful authority for detaining or removing the Poncas by force. The trial of Standing Bear was a victory for human rights, but as we'll see, it came at a high cost. Margaret Hiddle, welcome to our program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's talk about Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce War first. The U.S. government in 1877, uh, as with Standing Bear and the Poncas, tried to force the Nez Perce to relocate and sought to take their land in Oregon. It was designated as Nez Perce land under an 1855 treaty. Yeah, so Chief Joseph is one of the leaders of the Nez Perce Nation um, up in um, kind of the Pacific Northwest region. Um, and they uh, had negotiated some treaties with the United States that recognized their territory. Um, but then gold was discovered within their territory. Um, and uh, the United States tried to push them onto a reservation and then tried to remove them from that reservation um, and send them to what was then called Indian Territory and is today known as Oklahoma. Um, and they, the 
Nez Perce didn't want to go, that why would they want to go hundreds of miles away from the places where their ancestors were buried, from the places where they had um, the, you know, the resources, the food, the medicines, everything that they needed, their, their um, sense of connection to places where they were, um, the Nez Perce as a people. And so um, they resisted being forced to um, being forced to Oklahoma. And um, what happened is that the US military waged a kind of total war campaign against the Nez Perce and um, attacked villages during the winter, burned their stores. Um, and the Nez Perce people were getting pretty desperate and they made one last desperate attempt to get into Canada and use the border to protect them. Um, they actually traveled through Yellowstone and there are tourist accounts of um, tourists seeing the Nez Perce families traveling through there. Um, and uh, uh, then um, the US Army caught up with them um, and uh, there was a battle and the Nez Perce surrendered. That's where Chief Joseph in the first statement says, I can't watch any more of my children die. Right. Um, and they're forcibly removed to Oklahoma. Right, the army uh, fought two major battles. I think, I think something like 18 engagements across mm -hmm. this uh, 1400 mile um, um, retreat that Joseph, uh, uh, it's a strategically astounding feat from yeah. a military standpoint. And, um, and so uh, he, the, the Nez Perce are, are uh, fighting removal. They're fighting expatriation, being, being separated from their homelands, right? And this is why Joseph talks about broken promises, mm -hmm. misunderstandings, misinterpretations. Yes, because they had treaties that they had negotiated with the United States that said they could stay in their homelands and then the United States wanted more of their territory um, and more access to gold and so they broke those treaties. And, and uh, I mean this is where Standing Bear's journey is similar as well. Um, both are, are being forced to expatriate from their homelands. Both are um, reluctant and resistant to being removed. Uh, both, of course, go on extraordinary journeys uh, to resist the U.S. Army. Um, and both are um, imprisoned, essentially, and, and uh, captured by the U.S. Army. And both our parents who lose their children. Uh, right. And so, so um, what is J Joseph's statement about being treated uh, equally, mm -hmm. um, about being treated under the law uh, alike, um, being uh, born free and being denied liberty, who do you think his audience here is? He's making a very strategic choice here to appeal to the larger American public who value their own freedom and would, um, and he's using these terms, um, these, these 
American values of freedom and equality, um, and equality before the law, um, and saying if any of you were treated the way that our people are treated, you would absolutely not be okay with it, and you would fight back, um, and you would demand equal treatment under the law for yourselves and your families. Um, so he's appealing to those very American values um, mm -hmm. to make a case for himself and his people. He even speaks, it seems to me, in the, the language of, of social Darwinism, you know, individual. This is, he's an individual before the law and an individual um, before society. He wants an even chance to live like other men, you know, um, not asking for any other treatment than any other uh, person would have. Um, and so, again, I think appealing to this wide um, American audience, middle class American audience in, in the East, especially, who might uh, see the world in these terms. Um, Interesting, um, because he ends up going to Washington, D.C. with um, one of the military leaders who's responsible um, for waging the war against his people and for breaking his promises against his people. But because he's so committed to um, he's so committed to bringing his people back home, he uh, decides to work with this man who caused so much harm for his people because he thinks that that's the best strategy to um, help his people be able to return home. One of the things that's important to understand for why Chief Joseph is so concerned about being able to go home, and this is what happens with Standing Bear as well, once they're in Oklahoma, despite the United States promises, they're not given adequate food, they're not given adequate shelter, people are, you know, kept in basically prison camps, and they're getting sick, they're dying, um, and so there's another layer of broken promises that gets added on, um, added on to that, that even, um, even once they have been removed, promises continue to get broken. Um, and the other thing is um, that ultimately the Nez Perce are successful. Um, Chief Joseph's vision for his people does come true. This isn't a story that ends in um, the end of the 19th century. He fights for the rest of his life, and um, ultimately the Nez Perce in the 20th century are able to reclaim some of their land in, um, I believe it's in Idaho or western Washington, um, and they still have land there to this day. When we come back, we'll look at the Dawes Act and its impact on Native American sovereignty. Let's turn to the Dawes Act and talk about its origins, um, because Henry Dawes, the senator from Massachusetts, he, he hears uh, Standing Bear speak, um, and he's, uh, he sees himself as a, a reformer, uh, as a dedicated friend of, of the Indians, so to speak. And so he pursues this act of Congress to allot individual plots of land, 160 acres, to 
um, heads of household, uh, but it it doesn't turn out uh, too uh, too well. Um, even the best intentions of a reformer like Dawes become twisted and uh, turned into something. In this case, devastating. Where where does the Dawes Act originate? And this idea of expropriation of native land for certain kinds of purposes. But let's let's talk specifically about the Dawes Act. Um, how did it how did it work? How did allotment work? What what effect did it have? The effect of allotment was land loss. That's a, you know that's kind of the the most direct impact. Um, Native Americans lost 90 million acres as a direct result of their of the Allotment Act, or to put it another way, they lost two thirds of the land that they had in um, 1877 or 1887 when the Dawes Act was was passed. They lost and, two thirds of their and, land. And that land was by treaty. Right. That land was promised to them for future generations as long as the grass grows and the sun shines um promised to them by treaty yeah and those treaties had already dispossessed them of large uh tracts of land which the which the federal government either put into the homestead act or um granted to transcontinental railroads for example right exactly um, and so what the Dawes Act did was it took those reservation boundaries that had been created by um, by treaties and it divided up the land within those reservation boundaries into um, 100, 160 acre parcels um, and every head of and actually it wasn't even that much land on many reservations because many reservations weren't big enough right. for that large of land to be given out and so they made these lists of everybody who was a member of the various nations so everybody who was you know standing rock lakota um and they assigned parcels of land to um the heads of families and um children and um, children were given smaller parcels of land sometimes, but only up to a certain birth date. Um, and so this wasn't something that was expected to continue for future generations. It was a one-time thing that was gonna take care of all the land in the reservation. Um, and then the expectation was that Native Americans would farm this land. Um, Right. And, there, there could be no communal farming. It had right, to be, no. it had to be, they had to, to demonstrate, I think it was written into the act that um, individuals, heads of households had to demonstrate civilized habits to maintain their, um, because actually, was it, isn't it the case that the land is, is held in trust for 25 years? Uh, yes, that was the original intent of the law, and the idea with the kind of paternalistic perspective was that that way they'll learn to use the land before it can be taxed or sold. Right, um, so it, it, can't, it can't be transferred, it can't be um, sold, it can't be borrowed against. Right. It can, it, it, it's, it's being, the title is not turned over to uh, individual um, Indians at this point. It's... Right. right. Only 
what happens really quickly, um, especially in places like Minnesota and um, in places like uh, South Dakota where there were ranching interests who really wanted that land, they started lobbying Congress to get those trust, uh, those trust periods reduced. And so um, there's one of the good examples of this is the White Earth Ojibwe Reservation in Minnesota. They had so much diverse uh, forest that the lumber companies really wanted. And so they convinced the federal government to pass a law that said um, that uh, that if, if you went to court, if a Native person went to court and was deemed civilized uh, by the United States, by the by the court they would be declared a u.s citizen and then the trust period would end so citizenship here i mean that doesn't sound so bad right but they would bring people who had no no understanding of the english language into court who didn't you know they used this system to manipulate the ojibwe people um and actually to get the land out of trust so that the lumber companies could buy it up and the white earth nation lost 90% of their land. And a good counterexample is the Red, um, the Red Lake Reservation, another Ojibwe reservation in Minnesota. They negotiated a treaty after the Dawes Act. And as part of their treaty, they rejected allotment. They said, we'll agree to stay on this reservation land as long as you don't force allotment on us. And today, the Red Lake Reservation is one of the only reservations in the country that's entirely intact. So all of the land within their reservation boundaries is still Red Lake land, whereas other reservations have become patchworks of Indian land and land that no longer belongs to the tribe. Let's talk about that patchwork checkerboard pattern, which of course the U.S. Uh, puts into the Homestead Act as well with Railroad Land and Homestead Act land. There's the checkerboard pattern that students might be familiar with from that um, part of American history. But this checkerboard pattern has far different consequences, doesn't it? Because it, it deeply affects Native sovereignty. It does because um, the United States legal system ties sovereignty to control and ownership of land. And so even within the boundaries of the reservation, any land that had been sold to a non-native was no longer considered a part of the reservation. And so um, I'll use the example of hunting and fishing rights. So um, because native nations are sovereign within their borders, that means that state laws don't, generally speaking, if we're oversimplifying things, state laws don't apply within the boundaries of a reservation. Um, and then that means that Native people can hunt and fish and gather according to, you know, their own laws within the boundaries of their reservation, even if those laws conflict with state laws. They don't need a state license, that sort of thing. But when... Um, when allotment happened and you get that checkerboard pattern, all of a sudden, a lot of their hunting grounds, even if they're living on them, are no longer considered native land. And so the state jurisdiction applies there. So there's a lot of stories from my community of, um, of Ojibwe people going hunting on land that they're, you know, their mom's land. Um, and then they kill a deer and they're driving home to their, to their land um, and they would get arrested by state game wardens because they crossed over into 
non-Indian land while still within the boundaries of their reservation, just going between mm-hmm. two homes, right? So, so the Dawes Act further threatens Native sovereignty and Native rights and Native culture by, um, by giving state governments more control within reservation boundaries jurisdictional control w- right. within the within the native uh, reservation or or right. boundary yep standing bear makes the argument that um, he is under the 14th amendment born in the united states and is a therefore a citizen but if he, even if he's not he's a person under the constitution and and the case is widely remembered as an important moment in human rights history and the use of the writ of habeas corpus to, uh, for the first time in a U.S. court, declare that a Native American was a person under the meaning of the law, even though the district attorney, the U.S. district attorney, argued uh, that the precedent that should be followed is Dred Scott v. Sanford, perhaps the most notorious uh, decision in U.S. Supreme Court history. Uh, for denying African-Americans in 1857 any rights under the Constitution as persons. Um, Standing Bear's position um, is both, it seems to me that it's unusual at the time and yet vital, right? It's, it's It's an important statement of American legal principle, but at the same time, um, what does it say about native sovereignty questions? Right, because the part of the Standing Bear case that doesn't get talked about a lot is that in order to claim U.S. citizenship, he had to renounce his citizenship basically um, as, as a, a Ponca man, right? Mm-hmm. He had to renounce his, um, his nation there. Um, and so um, at the same time, it... Uh, it seems to right or and it does protect his legal rights under the U.S. Constitution. It does also have that uh, have the effect of going against Native sovereignty in a lot of ways. Um, by I mean, he's not he has to re- yeah he has to renounce his Indianness, and so the idea is right that a person can't be both Indian and American. Um, the idea is that. You know, Indians have to become, Native Americans have to become white, basically, or as close to white as their uh, poor, savage little selves can. Um, In order to gain entrance into the U.S. body politic, they have to do it on U.S. terms. Right. Uh, And when is Indian citizenship uh, passed? Uh, That's not until 1924. and uh, that actually, it's a complicated issue, right? Because some Native Americans actually argued against it, saying we don't want, we want, on principle, again, we're citizens of our own nations and we don't want um, to be forced into U.S. citizenship. Um, although the way it works in 1924 is you retain both simultaneously. What happened to Standing Bear doesn't happen to Native nations in 1924. Um, but... Uh, other Native Americans fought for it because they recognized that living in the still colonized world of the United States, the only way to guarantee 
um, to guarantee access to equal rights and to protect their land, especially when local governments were now in the middle of their reservations, they needed to be able to be on those local government, um, you know, government, uh, they, they needed to be able to participate in local government in order to protect their land. And the only way they could do that was through U.S. citizenship. So it was a political strategy that didn't mean they were renouncing their Indianness, but it was a way to actually protect the futures of their people for most of them. And it also didn't renounce Indian sovereignty. Right. Yes. Um, it explicitly in the Citizenship Act notes that they're not renouncing sovereignty. Yeah. So in the period we're talking about in the late 19th century, um, there is extraordinary pressure um, to dismantle the legal um, framework for native sovereignty. Um, mm -hmm. And Congress's act with the, uh, the Sioux Act is one example. Um, but um, this, this whole, would you say that the whole period is characterized really by an attempt to dismantle native sovereignty um, and create a, a kind of assimilated native uh, citizen. Yes, um, and that was not, that was explicitly stated by politicians at the time. Um, so one of the, um, one of the co-architects of the Dawes Act, a man named Merrill Gates, um, he was, he wrote a report uh, for Congress um, in the 1880s that said the two problems facing Native Americans are Native government, the fact that Native sovereignty exists, and the fact that they own land in common. Um, and so the, you know, even the most benevolent of, um, of laws toward Native Americans were rooted on the belief that being Native was bad and that um, that sovereignty was a bad thing for Native people and that just being Indian was bad, um, like was preventing Native people from making quote-unquote progress um, as uh, real Amer or as the rest of Americans. Um, and the Dawes Act by pushing farming um, and by um, promoting, uh, there, there's ways that the law promoted Christianity, um, and there's ways bound up in there that the Dawes Act was trying to dismantle Native culture um, and not just Native sovereignty, in part because Native culture is so tied to the land. So there's, yeah, it's all bound up in assimilation. And this is also the same time when Native children were being taken from their families and sent hundreds of miles away to boarding schools um, where they, you know, they had to stay for multiple years. Many children died in boarding schools because they were inadequately supplied. Um, and I mean, they were forced to, to um, change their names, cut their hair. Um, they were punished for speaking their language and they were kept from their families sometimes for years at a time. And that seems so like unimaginably cruel, right? But the people who did it thought that they were helping Native Americans, that assimilation would ultimately benefit them, um, and, you know. Well, they saw themselves as reformers. Right. Um, the Carlisle Indian School is, is uh, full of, of this spirit of late 19th century reform. 
that an individual can be changed with, uh, and, and this other reform movements, you know, temperance, for example, right. this idea that, the, and the penitentiary reform movement in the 19th century, earlier in the 19th century, which is persisting in this period, is premised on this idea of, of eradicating cultures uh, and building a kind of Victorian um, culture of self-control and of particular kinds of uh, knowledge and um, behavior into, and, 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 and faith into, uh, into a person. Um, the boarding schools, did some people want their children to go to these schools? Some people did um, for uh, kind of two main reasons. Some, some families, because of dispossession um, and because they were cut off from their, um, their usual ways of feeding their families through, um, through hunting, fishing, gathering, and everything, um, they couldn't feed their kids. They couldn't get their kids a winter coat. And so they, you, they, they thought that if they sent their kids to boarding school, they, will, they would at least... Um, get a get what they needed the basic necessities and then there were other people um, who uh, who thought that th their children should learn the tools of um, their colonizers um, so that they could survive and thrive in the world uh, Charles Eastman um, who's a, a Dakota man um, is one of those you know his father said I'm sending you to boarding school because I want you to be able to like learn the white man's ways and then um, you can go out into the world um, and help yourself and help your people. And that's exactly what Eastman did. Um, he's one of the people who fought for the, um, the Native American Citizenship um, Act and he became an, or an organizer to protect Native American sovereignty um, and that's what happened with a lot of boarding school graduates, is that they took what they learned and advocated for their people and for their people's sovereignty, even if they were saying, you know, um, even if they were saying it in the English language and in English newspapers and while wearing, you know, a corset. Thank you, Margaret Hiddle. And thank you all for listening. Join us for our next podcast on Ida B. Wells and the Campaign to End Lynching.